Jeremiah chapter 2, and we will read the entire chapter together. (coughs) Jeremiah 2, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they were, went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord? And brought us up from the land of Egypt who led us in the wilderness. In a land of deserts and pits in a land of drought and deep darkness in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend for cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea or send to Kedar and examine with care See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins, without inhabitants. Moreover, the men of Memphis... And Taphne, have shaved the town, the crown of your heads. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. 
but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. And as a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah, why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a a ravaging lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free. We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even the wicked woman you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you said, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it, too, you will come away with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. We have the joy of introducing um, to you, many of you know him already, uh, Pastor Murray Brett from Grace Baptist Church in Commerce, one of our sister churches and our associations. Uh, Many of you probably know his son better, Benjamin, who worships with us and who will be marrying Raven in May. And Lord willing, we hope they continue to be a part of our congregation. So uh, I've told you often that whenever the opportunity arises, I want you to hear from other men, and especially other men I've benefited from greatly. And when I read books, if I see someone footnoted time and time and time again in the same book 
eventually I want to set that book aside and pick up the book that keeps getting footnoted and read that one. And I think uh, you could probably say of me that much of what you hear from me, I'm footnoting Murray Brett, and I'm very, very honest in saying that. He's been a tremendous help to me, and by proxy, a tremendous help to you, I hope. And so um, having him here is a blessing, and he's a dear friend, and I'm very glad that we have opportunity to hear from him. So we've taken a lot of his time up this morning, and I just want us to listen to Murray preach and that we uh, not worry about uh, the time um, and uh, that we would uh, hear the word of God in preparation for taking of the Lord's Supper. So, brother, please come and share with us this morning. It is great to be with you again, and um, I love uh, y'all for very many reasons. Uh, I love Nick very much, and I'm coming to love Russ more. I love him, and growing in my friendship with him, it's great to um, renew that friendship and grow in it each time we come down. I love Sam, and where's, uh, where's Steve Thomas? I love Steve Thomas very much. There he is back there. And I am glad to be able to renew my friendship with Steve as well. But I, but I love you. Do you know why? I'm deeply indebted to you for nurturing two people whom I love very much. Uh, my, my middle son, Benjamin, and his bride-to-be, his lovely bride-to-be, Raven. Thank you so much for taking good care of them and nurturing them. And um, hopefully they will settle here. I'm glad for it. Uh, I think it's a good place to be, a good church family to uh, nurture a new marriage in and raise a family in. So I hope they do settle here. Um, would ask that you pray with me once more. And uh, we'll get into our passage. Lord, we pray that uh, by a sovereign work, uh, you would now grant your spirit uh, with fullness of measure to us. Illumine our minds so that we not only understand the truth, but also love it. Not only we love the truth, but we love the God who gave it. The God whom... It represents the God whom it um, depicts, the God whom it reveals. Be with us now, we ask, uh, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In part two of Pilgrim's Progress, Great Heart and Company, the Great Heart is the Pilgrim God, the shepherd of the sheep. He's the pilgrim guy. Great heart and all his many company entered enter a land called the Enchanted Land. And they come upon a man who's down on his knees and he's praying and he's crying out to God. And he says to them, uh, a tall, dark, slender woman dressed to kill uh, presented herself to me. And uh, she offered three things. One, she offered 
her body for sensual pleasure. Two, she offered her purse for material treasure. And three, she offered her bed for rest. Stand fast is his name. And he resists time and time again. But this woman persists over and over and over and over again. He becomes angry because of her bold disregard for God. But no matter. She just bats those eyes just like, uh, just like they do. And she offers herself to him over and over again. She says that if he would be ruled by her, that she will make him great and happy. For I'm the mistress of the world, she says, and I make men happy. And that's when uh, Standfast, Mr. Standfast, falls to his knees, prays, and help comes and she leaves. Bunyan calls this mistress of the world Madam Bubble. Fitting title. Compared to the weight of glory in God, the world is like a bubble, full of nothing but vain pleasures, empty treasures, and no rest for weary pilgrims. Um, we ooh and awe at the world, even though it's uh, full of vain pleasures and empty treasures, don't we? Just like we ooh and awe over a soap bubble. You do it, don't you? You, you buy your children these little soap bubbles and they blow them, and then you blow them too, don't you? We do. And especially in the sunlight, they refract all the colors in the, in the spectrum, don't they? And you say, oh, no, it's sort of like a diamond flashing, isn't it? See all those colors. And then the children run after them and chase them, don't they? And they pop. And what's there? A little breath. Do you know the word breath is the word twice occurring in verse 5. A little breath. Um, of what value is going after a little breath, like a bubble. You see it? It's there. It's beautiful, isn't it? But you pop it and it's gone. It's gone. That's the word that is translated in some versions, idle. And uh, I go, you, you go after idolatry and you become idolatrous, or you go after vanity and you become vain. It's that word, a breath. It's empty, it's vain, it's nothing there. Greatheart says that Madame Bubble is an enchantress. He says that whoever lays eyes on her beauty is counted as an enemy of God, and whoever lays his head in her lap had just as well lay his head on a chopping block with an axe on the back of it. Madame Bubble has three daughters. We know them well, don't we? 
lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. That's their names. And they're always after pilgrims. They're always chasing us around with all that they have to offer. What they have to offer, compared to the weight of glory in God, is like a bubble. And it's gone. Madam Bubble offers anything and everything to those who will love her. She throws gold around like dust for those who worship her. She promises unending pleasure for those who entertain her. And she offers crowns and kingdoms to any who bow down to her and worship her. She brings countless, prison, countless pilgrims into bondage and ten thousands of thousands more into hell. How quickly we, not they, we're here this morning, how quickly we go after Madam Bubble. How quickly we marry the world and go after all it offers us. And we need to be aware of it. We go after the world and all its vanity and all its emptiness. And we forsake the love of God and first love in God. I invite you to follow along as I read Jeremiah 2, 1 to 5, and then verse 13. I'm only going to read these five verses, and then uh, verse 13, uh, these six verses, and then we'll seek to unpack our message, married to Madam Bubble, or King Jesus, question mark. To whom are you married? To whom am I married? To whom, whom, whom do I marry any given day? Who do you marry? Any given day. The world, the vanity and emptiness and folly of the world, or King Jesus. Married to Madam Bubble, or King Jesus, or devotion of first love. There it is. Once again, and I'll be reading from the New King James this time. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. First love, first love, first love. When you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord, set apart for God in her devotion. The first fruits of her increase, of, of, of his increase, God's increase, the first fruits of his increase. We're the, we're the second fruits, aren't we, as Gentiles? That's what it means here. All that devour him will offend. All anything that come against God's bride, his his love will offend him. And uh, disaster then will come upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, a house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What injustice have your fathers found to me? Well, let's don't do the they. Let's do 
the me. Let's do the we. Okay? What injustice have you found in me? That you, that I, that we have gone far from God. Have followed idols, vanities, and have become idolaters. Utterly empty. Verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, I understand as many of you understand the importance of keeping up first love. My wife, Paula, whom many of you know, met, uh, we will celebrate this coming July the 14th, our 29th anniversary. We understand the importance of getting away a few days uh, periodically to recover um, uh, the thrill of uh, that first love that we had when we uh, became engaged and devoted ourselves to each other solely and uh, to each other's interest and to serving God together. I understand that. And when we get away, uh, Paula will often look at me with those big brown uh, eyes, those, those, uh, those big brown eyes with wild-eyed passion. And boy, do we love that, don't we? We love wild-eyed passion, don't we? Nothing wrong with it. Everything is right with it. Devoted to your first love. She'll look at me with those big brown eyes, those wild-eyed, passionate eyes, and she said, Now remember why I married you in the first place. Why, why would she say that? It's almost inevitable that it takes place. And the experience that follows of renewing first love is also inevitable when we cultivate and rekindle first love. Oh, you know, it's... It's uh, universal, isn't it? The cares of family, especially young mothers and uh, all mothers and fathers. The cares of family, the business of life, uh, you know, all that requires our energies, all that requires our time, all that requires our thinking, all that requires our attention. Draws us away, doesn't it, from the attraction of first love. We must remember first love to keep it up. First love is the devotion of the entire self, mind, heart, will, body, possessions, gifts, the cultivation of those graces to make the gifts useful. First love is the devotion of everything that we are and everything that we possess to that other person whom we're called to to make God's name great among the nations. And that's the purpose of it, isn't it? The first love of devotion whereby we enjoy the expressions of, of the marriage union and our communion together. Whereby... 
We, make, we put God on display for the nations, for the world around us. That's first love. The devotion of all to God. The devotion of all to God. We must remember first love to keep it up. And in Jeremiah 2, 1 and 2, what we quickly forget, God remembers. He never forgets. He never ever, ever forgets. And so he often reminds us of it. He reminds us of first love. So let's look again at verse 2 and the reminder of first love. In verse 2, the Sovereign Lord says, I remember you. I remember you. The kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me with wild-eyed passion in a wilderness. When you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. The Word of God in verse 2 looks and feels like the freshness of spring. Good time to preach this passage, isn't it? Spring. It's what it feels like. It's what it looks like. It's what it smells like, doesn't it? In it, God Himself recaptures the fervent heat of first love. Israel, as God's bride, looked on God with wild-eyed beauty and passion. And she devoted herself fully to Him. She went after Him in a wilderness where there, were no, there was nothing else but God. That's all Israel needed. It's all we need, isn't it? Is that all you need? Is it all I need? Is God all we need, really? Or do we need the material world around us to satisfy us, to fill our deepest longings? Is that what we need? Do we need Madam Bubble? Or do we need God? Israel went after God in the wilderness. There were no other good gifts in the wilderness to live upon but God Himself. And that's what they did. They lived upon God in the wilderness. It's a wonderful picture. They lived upon God and God alone for a time. This land was a land not sown. It was a barren. It was a, it was a desert, a barren land, a wasteland. A land devoid of life because there was no water. There was no fountain save God. And God became for them that fountain. He became for them that fountain of living water. Every statement in this chapter throws the sharpest contrast on life, life, and glory in God and with God without the world. Every statement in this chapter throws the sharpest contrast on God without the world compared to the darkness, death, and vanity in the world without God. 
That's the contrast. Life with God, life without God. If I have life with God, I need nothing else. You need nothing else. We need nothing else. If life is without God, everything else we need, but it doesn't satisfy. It won't satisfy. It cannot. It's not designed to. Every thought in this verse, in this chapter, highlights the fickleness of a bride who has forgotten and forsaken God as God. It's not just God. It's not just somebody else's God. It's God as my God. It's God as your God. God as the sovereign Lord. God as the fountain of all life. God as God. And we're still fickle, aren't we? We still haven't figured out who we are, have we? Why? Because we haven't experienced God for who He is. We haven't drunk ourselves full of the fountain of life, have we? And if we did, we don't continue, do we? We forsake our first love, don't we? We forsake easily God as a fountain of Life, don't we? Every phrase in this section serves to contrast the betrayal of first love and also its opposite. The devotion of first love, that's its opposite, isn't it? The steady devotion of a bride who remembers God each and every day. The steady devotion of a bride who remembers going after God for the reason that God went after us. And He loved us. And He loves us still. And He devotes Himself entirely to us. And He still does. It's incredible. It's a love that we must remember. Why? Because God does. And He reminds us. Now, second, let's consider the betrayal of first love. The reminder of first love. The betrayal of first love. And I'm going to work it out as practically and pastorally as I possibly can so that we will see the opposite of it, the devotion of first love, the recovery of first love, the rekindling of first love for what it really is, and seek it. So let's, let's consider now the betrayal of first love. And I want, to make, I want to take two verses and look at one statement made in them and also the implied opposite, Okay? It's important to think about implied opposites for the fullness of the matter, right? What it is and what it's not for the big picture, for the whole story, right? So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to take verses 5 and 13, and then we're going to use statements made in chapter 2 to fill up the meaning of a question which everyone must ask who forsakes first love in God. 
Do you know what that question is? It's stated here. Um, I read it in such a way so that you can find yourself in it and not just somebody else. The statement is, what injustice have you found in me that you've forsaken me? That's it. What injustice? What inadequacy? What insufficiency? What unrighteousness have you found in me that you have forsaken me? And gone after vanity, emptiness, and become vain and empty yourselves. Isn't that our trouble? Isn't that our trouble? Verse, verse 5. What injustice have your fathers found in me, have you found in me, that you have gone far from me and have followed idols, vanities, emptiness, and have become idolaters, utterly empty? Feel it? That utter emptiness is gnawing, isn't it? It's a gnawing, nagging reality, isn't it? That emptiness, that vanity... Do you feel it? Do you feel it? I'm not interested just to have you say, I, I know. Feel it. Feel the gnawing, nagging in emptiness of the vanity of seeking some other love other than God. Verse 13. My people have committed, we have committed two evils. We have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see in verse 5, God asks this question. It's an important question. What injustice have you found in me that you have ceased being devoted to me? What inadequacy? What, what emptiness, what emptiness have we found in God that we have gone after something or someone else to fill that emptiness? Can't be filled with anything other than God. What evil? That's, it's, uh, the, the word Hebrew, avail, is often translated injustice, unrighteousness, uh, evil, wickedness, uh, inadequacy. It's translated a, a number of ways, and, and that for a very good reason, so that we don't identify someone else as the beholder of this, uh, as having this problem, and we can finally identify ourselves. Because this, this vanity sometimes morphs itself, doesn't it? This, this, this empty treasure sometimes takes on a different shape on different days, on different weeks, on different months, on different years, different occasions, different situations, different circumstances, different, different providences in our lives. But it's always after us, just like Madame Bubble is always after us. Always. Always presenting itself for us to forsake God and go after something or someone else. Always. 
What evil have you found in me that now you pursue your greatest good in something or someone else? That's a trouble, isn't it? My trouble. It's your trouble. I want to summarize verses 6 through 8 in terms of a question. And uh, you'll just have to uh, go back to them yourselves because I can't reread it, each one of these summaries, in order to formulate a question, a probing question, a practical question, a pastoral question, that we can use our, ourselves on a given day to shepherd our souls back to first love in God. And we must. You see, we must use probing, heart-searching, pastoral, practical questions like this. A question that we might form from verses 6 through 8. Have you ever met with any disappointment in me that you should grow weary of my law? Or weary of my worship? Any disappointment in God? Verse 13. Form it in its opposite. Have I ever been a taste of bitterness in your mouth? Has God ever been a taste of bitterness to you? Has He ever been a broken fountain? Has God ever been a broken fountain to us? Has He ever been um, a dry well? Has He ever? Verse 31. Have I ever been a wilderness for you? Has God ever been a barren wilderness for you? Has He ever? Have I ever been darkness for you? Has God ever been anything but marvelous light to you? Why? Why? At the end of verse 31, how can you possibly say to me, I'm going to be my own sovereign now. How is that possible? How is it possible? I'm going to be my own sovereign Lord now. I don't find sufficient sweetness in God to cause me to draw near Him any longer. My sovereignty to determine what's best in my own eyes and live upon the goodness of what I can see is enough. That's enough. It's enough to compel me no longer to live upon God, even though I can see Him, even though I'm, I have seen Him before through the eyes of faith. My sovereignty means more than God and what I can see lives 
in this life means more to me than him whom I cannot see. Him whom I have seen before through the eyes of faith. That's what compelled me to devote my first love to him to start with. The eyes of my heart were enlightened so that I saw God in all his beauty, all his glory, all his infinite goodness passed by me, just like it passed by Moses. It passes by every believer, believing person, first at conversion, and then hopefully every day afterwards. But when we forsake first love, that infinite goodness ceases to pass by. Because, it's, because why does it cease to pass? It's not really that it ceased to pass by. We just turned our back on God. And He's back there in his infinite goodness is still just as compelling, but it's no longer care. I've cast him behind me. I've forsaken him. God's people have had a long history of leaving their first love. And it started very, very early. As soon as God delivered Israel from her bondage in Egypt, entered the covenant, what does that mean? Married God. Isn't that what that means? As soon as God married Israel, and Israel returned her devotion, her promise of uh, faithfulness to him, as soon as that took place at Mount Sinai, Israel forsook God and fashioned the golden calf. That's what we do. Does it take the same form, you know, shiny gold looking like um, some uh, cattle? Does it take that same shape and form? But we still struggle. We still struggle. And we must understand that every departure from God is our God, is a rejection of God as our highest good. The highest possible good. That's what it is. We must see it for what it is. Every departure from first love in God is a departure from drinking infinite goodness as our greatest source of happiness. Greatest. Every time we put any lesser good in the place of God, we're forsaking God as a fountain of life and we're going after broken systems or lesser goods, lesser treasures, lesser pleasures. That's what we do. That's what's at stake. And every time we go after broken systems, we're saying this. We're making this statement. I can't expect to be made any happier by God. Ever said that? Maybe you never use those precise words. But the laws of our heart and the actions of our wills say it more clearly than our words sometimes, don't they? Do you see that forsaking God is nothing really but contempt for God as our God? 
Every sin shows contempt for God in two ways, two very important ways, two distinct ways. What it does is it shows contempt for God's absolute sovereignty and also contempt for his infinite goodness, both, both. And we must see that our loss of attraction, our loss of affection, and our disobedience, we must see the disobedience and loss of attraction for what it really is. One, in the loss of attraction to God and loss of devotion to God, what we're really saying is this. God's character is devoid of enough goodness, sufficient goodness, infinite goodness. It's devoid of that. God really isn't infinite after all. He's not a fountain of life after all. God's character is devoid of infinite goodness. And when we say that, we are believing the devil's age-old lie. We depart from God and we seek to live off some goodness we can see with our eyes in the world around us. It's easily done. It's easily done every day. It's easily done for weeks and months and even years, even by us as believers. Two, in our lack of affection and our devotion, we're saying loving God would require that I turn my back on all other loves. My heart is way too fickle for that. That's what we're saying, isn't it? My heart is way too divided to ever devote myself fully to God alone. And in our disobedience, this is what we're saying. God's law and His providence are just snares to entrap me, to make me miserable. Now, we may have never said that, but I guarantee you, it's bound up somewhere in the way in which we live. And what we devote our interest to on a daily basis, isn't it? We read over passages like this too quickly to see what they're saying to shepherd our soul back towards living upon God as a fountain of life. We're too fickle. We're too divided. An old pastor once said, that we live like animals if we do not see God as infinitely good. Hmm. Boy, that, that hits me. This hits me worse. He says, we live like devils if our hearts are never moved by God's goodness. That makes you shudder, doesn't it? Me? Live like a devil? How could it be? Simple. Because I'm not compelled by infinite goodness. And every time he says we disobey God or neglect doing our duty, we deny God's sovereignty. But listen, every time we do any duty without loving God, 
we deny infinite goodness. Anybody in here go through the motions of just being married? Just do the duties? Isn't that a reflection of just doing the duties in terms of our relationship with God? Not cultivating first love? Isn't that a reflection? Isn't it an illustration of it? Isn't it an, an inevitable display that that's what's taking place in our heart of hearts in relation to God? Oh, caught, aren't we? What happens when we deny God's sovereignty and His goodness is then we believe that it's empty and vain to serve God. We leave our first love and we charge God with some injustice, some inadequacy. And we always do it. In order to forsake God, we have to say, and we say it loud and clear to someone else, we'll complain, we'll grumble, will express God's inadequacy in some way or another. It's always true because you can't leave God without charging Him first with some injustice. You can't do it. Similarly, in our human relationships. You can't leave a friendship, you can't leave a marriage until first you've adequately painted a picture of total inadequacy in this other person or insufficiency to meet your needs or expectations or compel you to love them any longer or be devoted to them. In Genesis 42, when Joseph's brothers came back from Egypt and brought news to Jacob that a ruler in, the, the ruler of all Egypt had kept Simeon and wanted them to bring Benjamin, this is what Jacob cried. Do you remember it? Joseph is no more. You can hear him. Simeon is no more. And you want to take my Benjamin from me? Do you know what he says next? All these things are against me. What is he saying, really? Providence is against me. Now, what is he really saying? God is against me. Do you see what he's done? Jacob, a man who had wrestled all night long and God had shown him his glory in ways in which he had not to other men, he saw the face of God, he saw the conscious smile of God, he was taken in by the conscious smile of God, he named the place Peniel, meaning face of God, and devoted his life to doing good afterwards because he lived off of the fountain of life. For some reason, that doesn't compel him anymore. For some reason, he forsaken first love. And so now he charges God with injustice. Now he charges God with insufficiency. Now he charges God with inadequacy. Providence is against me. How many times have you said that? God against you? If it, if it weren't for the clear statements in Scripture, as was preached this past week in Romans 8, 
sometimes, because our minds and our hearts are so fickle, we wouldn't believe that God is for us who could be against us. We wouldn't believe it, would we? But that's the clear statements of Scripture. And the proof of it is in the giving of His Son and in the giving of His Spirit so that we experience Him and all His infinite beauty and infinite goodness and infinite glory. When Naomi lost her husband and two sons, she went back to Bethlehem. Her friends were all glad to see her after such a long time away. And this is what they said. Can that really be Naomi coming there? Do you remember in Ruth chapter 1 what she says? Don't call me Naomi any longer. You can hear the gruffness, the harshness, the grumbling in her voice that's in her heart. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Meaning, my delight is in God. Call me Mara. Meaning, bitterness. I left this fool and that's as happy as I could be. And God has brought me back empty. How is that possible? Is that possible? you see here? She's obviously left her first love. She's no longer compelled by the adequacy, by the sufficiency, by the glory in God. And now she has to charge God with something less than what God really is. Naomi left her first God. And charge God with injustice. Have you? Have I? Have we left our first love? And now we're in the midst. We're caught. And charging God with some inadequacy. What was upon our lips this last week? Was it complaining? Was it grumbling? Why? Isn't it because we have have forsaken first love in God? Is it because we've forsaken... God as the object of first love? Is it because we've forgotten God's kindness to us? In the story of Mary and Martha, Martha is married to the world. She's married to her kitchen. She's married to her duties. Her duties in the kitchen are more important than spending time with God. And Martha not only leaves her first love, she also charges Jesus with injustice, doesn't she? She goes right into that. She marches. You can see her, can't you? She marches out of the kitchen. She marches right into that living room where all the guests are. And Mary is there 
at Jesus' feet. And she says, you, Jesus, are keeping Mary from doing what she's obligated to do. Serving this crowd of people you are. That's what you're doing. But here's Mary. Look at her at Jesus' feet. She's there with a heart full of love and devotion to Christ. Christ means more to her than anything else. She's not married to her duties like Martha. She's not married to her belly, which is what preparing food might mean and eating it might mean for us. Appetites. She's not married to the world at all. Mary's not married to Madame Bubble. Mary is married to King Jesus. To whom are you married? Which good are you choosing? Lesser? Good. They are not the goods of common grace are, are they're good. We don't deny that, do we? Friendship, family, good food. I hope to eat a little bit this afternoon. I've been eating good food all week long. I enjoy that. I enjoy watching all those kids squirm and play around yesterday. That's a common grace, isn't it? I enjoyed watching the interaction of loving mothers and fathers take care of their kids. I enjoy all that. We all do, don't we? But they're lesser goods. And we must not live upon them. They're not our life. They're not a fountain for us. We don't neglect them. We don't reject them. But we must not live upon them, you see. With little or no love for God, we can easily live on common grace, just like an unbeliever. We do. I do. I can. It's something I must be attentive to each and every day. It's something we all must be attentive to each and every day. But with the fervent heat of passionate, wild-eyed first love for God, because of who God is and because of what God has done, devoted Himself entirely to us, devoted all that He is, all that He has, all that He's done, all that He's doing, all that He promises to do, to draw us out of the world and our love for the world and devote ourselves entirely to Him. That's what covenant love is all about. 
That's what God's marriage to his people is all about. Drawing us out of the world. This Egyptian-like world that we live in. With Egyptian-like darkness and Egyptian-like bondage and Egyptian-like death. In order to devote ourselves entirely to him because he's delivered us. He married us. He devoted himself entirely to us. What is your best portion? Is it God? Why do we choose to marry Madame Bubble instead of King Jesus? We're silly worms. Isn't that what Jeremiah says? We're worms. We're silly worms. We're silly worms. We're we're fickle brides. That's why we we can live on a few sparks when the Son of Righteousness would rise upon us with healing in His wings. We're satisfied with a few, a few sparks that we can see. We easily live on a few drops of water. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? Just a few drops. Just give me a few drops. When there is an infinite ocean... A fountain of life in God. And we satisfy with a few drops. Mm. We taste a little pleasure in the lust of our eyes and we squeeze it, don't we? Oh my goodness, we squeeze it. We squeeze it. We hold on to it. We must have it. And then it has us. Little material treasure. We come into it. We hold on to it. We fondle it. These possessions of ours. We milk all the pleasure we can out of our earthly treasures. They have us. Here's another one you may not anticipate. We taste a little pleasure in the pride of hard work, self-importance, now that we use as a result of being recognized for the hard work that we've done. And we hold on to it, and we squeeze it, and we, and we, and we say, we live off of it. We use it to lift us, boost us up, carry us. This hard work that we've done. Thank you. It's an easy thing to do, isn't it? It's, it's a universal struggle that we all have. It's the nature of our idolatry. What will you do? What will I do? What will we do together? What will you do together as a people, as a church? Will you, will you marry the mistress of the world? Or will you marry King Jesus? And marrying King Jesus, will you keep up first love? Will you cultivate 
the love of God, your devotion to God as all? Will you devote yourself entirely to Him? What will you do? Will you? Will you devote yourself to God? Will you go after Him with wild-eyed passion? Because He's gone after you. And He's married you. Now marry Him. And devote yourself entirely to Him. I pray that you will.